is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, welcome to the program. The Prime Minister of Timor-Leste has been in the Northern Territory meeting with farmers and signing a strategic partnership. You'll learn more about that very soon. Also today, a trip to Mataranka, where community members are working hard to make the area neem-free by 2023. I don't know that people realise how invasive it is. And once you do get closer to the river, you start seeing monocultures. So it's up to us to make a difference because it's not going to happen by itself. Yeah, the battle against neem trees and plenty more on today's Country Hour. I hope you can stick around. The Environment Centre NT is taking the Northern Territory Government to court in what it says is a landmark challenge over land clearing for cotton. The Environment Centre is challenging the NT Pastoral Land Board's decision to allow the owners of a Vern station to clear around 920 hectares in the Victoria River District, of which about 250 hectares would be used to trial non-irrigated cotton. The Northern Land Council has also commenced legal proceedings in the Supreme Court, challenging the same land clearing permit. Kirsty Howie is the director of the Environment Centre. Uh, Kirsty, can you explain to us what the Environment Centre is challenging here? Yes, well, we're taking on this case because essentially we believe that a delegate of the Pastoral Land Board that's got uh, the authority to grant land clearing permits has failed to uphold the law by granting a permit to clear land uh, expressly for cotton at a Vern station in the in the VID. My understanding is the land clearing approval is for a range of crops here. Some of it's cotton. The majority of it is pasture for hay. That's right. So there will be different crops grown there according to the land clearing application. But some of it, uh, just over 200 hectares, I believe, will be... Uh, cotton will be grown there. And our argument is that uh, it's that particular crop uh, that falls foul of the Pastoral Land Act because we're asserting that cotton is not a pastoral purpose within the meaning of the Pastoral Land Act. So growing Rhodes grass to feed cattle versus growing cotton where you'd feed the cotton seed to the cattle, what is the difference there, do you feel? Well, that is exactly the kind of question that will be assessed by the Supreme Court. Uh, We're aware of the argument that cotton can be fed to cattle as a byproduct, but uh, we believe that it is not consistent with the purposes of Pastoral Land Act to grow cotton, and there is a difference between these different crops, uh, and it depends on what the primary purpose of those crops are. There were many land clearing permits approved last year and a number of them were actually bigger than what's happening there at Averne Station. Why target Averne's plans in particular? Look, essentially it's about the the fact that this particular land clearing permit has been granted for cotton and uh, essentially this case, while Averne Station is within scope of the actual challenge, it will have ramifications beyond Averne Station, meaning that growing cotton can't be done without additional approvals. And namely, that is a non-pastoral use permit. So essentially, Matt, what we're seeing here in the Northern Territory is 
uh, land clearing approvals being given on the pastoral estate, which covers over 40% of the Northern Territory, including for cotton, uh, but we're not seeing non-pastoral use permits being applied for. And our strong position has been, at all times, that additional level of scrutiny and approval is needed if you're going to grow cotton. So you'd argue that a station doesn't need a non-pastoral use permit for, say, roads grass, but it should need to get one for cotton. That's right. Uh, so essentially, it's it's about the connection with the pastoral enterprise, with the cattle enterprise. Uh, and those are legal arguments that will be ventilated, of course, uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, Matt, there's a process for obtaining approval to do things that aren't for a pastoral purpose. And we're not seeing cotton growers applying for these permits. And we believe that that's unlawful. I'm still not quite sure as to why you're targeting Avern in particular, because there's other examples of this in the Northern Territory, yes? There are other examples of this in the Northern Territory. Uh, however, Avern Station is uh, the first station we've seen where we've had legal advice from our barristers that this is a course that's open to us. And of course, there are limitation periods that apply uh, to the ability to commence judicial review proceedings in the Supreme Court. Uh, so, Yes, Avern Station, uh, and particularly it's the Pastoral Land Board, of course, and a delegate of the Pastoral Land Board that we have actually primarily taken to court here about that decision. We are seeking review of the Pastoral Land Board's decision, and that shouldn't be lost here. There are quite a few members on the Pastoral Land Board. I'm getting the sense from you, Kirsty Howie, that you're singling out one person. Uh, we're not singling out anyone in particular in this particular okay. case. What we have seen is a delegate of the Pastoral Land Board who made the decision in this case, and this is actually pursuant to the new streamlined processes for approving land clearing in the Northern Territory. They were announced with great fanfare two years ago. You'll recall that approval times were purportedly going to be slashed from six months to six weeks. Um, and it is a delegate of the pastoral land board rather than the pastoral land board itself that makes that decision. And that's why we've sought a review of that decision. This is now before the Supreme Court. Are you able to share with us some rough timelines on, on what people could expect? Look, I think the first thing that will happen is we'll have an early mention, which could be, you know, within the next month. And then there'll have to be uh, orders made for the filing of evidence um, and submissions um, and really, you know, it's anyone's guess when this is likely to come on for hearing. It could be uh, at any time in the next six months to 12 months. Right. Uh, and just finally, I've got my calculator out here. Uh, we're talking a, a trial on a Vern that would be 0.0001% of the Northern Territory. Why do you think this is important to challenge in court? Look Matt, with due respect, that assertion is completely farcical. Uh, I've heard it said time and time again, oh, we're only talking about less than 1% of the Northern Territory being cleared or a small proportion of a particular station. Can I put it to you that we would never say that mines only cover less than 1% of the Northern Territory, so therefore we shouldn't assess the impacts. This is about local impacts on local environments, and we know that people are concerned about the damage caused to our rivers from runoff and chemicals, greenhouse gas emissions and impacts on wildlife due to land clearing. 
So the impacts of land clearing extend far off the area actually cleared, and we are seeing an increase in land clearing occurring in the Northern Territory. We've assessed it as an increase in the last few years of 300%. We need this to be properly regulated, and it's not being properly regulated. It's not about singling out a particular station. It's about a structural problem that we believe is occurring across the pastoral estate and our view that uh, we're not following the law when it comes to regulating land clearing specifically for cotton. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Kirsty Howie is the Director of the Environment Centre NT. Chief Minister Natasha Files held a press conference this morning and was asked about this court case. Let's have a listen to her response. I think people need to understand the balance. We have strong environmental legislation. We have strong legislation across the board, whether it's to protect the workers that are working on these projects or whether it's to ensure that we deliver infrastructure in a safe manner or whether it's to protect our environment. We strive to find the balance. We need to have economic growth so that we have the revenue to fund the services that we need in the Northern Territory and to have jobs to keep people here in the Territory. But our environment absolutely is a priority and that is shown whether it's water, whether it's land management, uh, a range of areas. So we have done a significant amount of work around environmental legislation and will continue to do so. Are you worried that the balance is tipping too far in one direction? It seems that every one of these projects now gets held up by some kind of legal challenge. Um, The balance is tipping too far in that direction rather than in the direction of economic development. I think it's important that we don't have frivolous legal challenges, that there is a process there if it is needed, because it doesn't go 100% all the time. But I think it's important for Territorians to understand there is strong regulation and legislation to protect those things that matter to them, water and the environment, but do allow us to develop our economy so that we can have jobs and opportunity, not only for Territorians, but attracting people to the Territory. That is the Chief Minister, Natasha Files, speaking earlier this morning. As mentioned, the Northern Land Council has also commenced legal proceedings in the Supreme Court challenging this land clearing permit on Avern Station. Here at the Country Hour, we've invited the Northern Land Council to come onto the program and have a conversation about this. Instead, we've been sent a statement which says the challenge is made on the grounds that the rights and interests of native title holders and sacred site custodians, including their traditional rights to use the land which are reserved under the terms of the pastoral lease, were not properly considered. The statement says the native title holders also claim that the decision-making process was procedurally unfair and that a purpose of the land clearing is to grow cotton, which is not a permitted pastoral activity. Chief Executive Joe Martin-Jard says the NLC is not opposed to development, but it must be done in a sustainable and respectful way. It's not good enough that Aboriginal Territorians with legal rights on country subject to pastoral leases have no opportunity to have their voices heard before land clearing is permitted. And he says native title holders are now having to turn to the courts to try and have their rights and interests acknowledged and respected. Here at the Country Hour, we have contacted the owners of Avern Station, Clean Agriculture and International Tourism, also known as Kate, and it has declined to comment. G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird, I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to The Country Hour. It is 19 to 1. The CSIRO has released a report looking at how carbon emissions could be offset from any gas developments in the Beedaloo Basin of the Territory. It was one of the big questions posed 
in the Pepper Inquiry's recommendations for allowing fracking to occur there in the Beedaloo. Dan Fitzgerald, this report, what more can you tell us? Yeah, Matt, so recommendation 9.8 of that Pepper Inquiry, it said that for fracking to go ahead in the Beedaloo, all life cycle emissions have to be offset so that there's no net increase in greenhouse gas emissions in the NT from the Beedaloo. Yeah, and there's been some people say it can't be done. Yeah, so the CSRO has been looking at this big question mm-hmm. And the researchers modelled a few different scenarios depending on how much gas might come out of the Beedaloo. And the authors conclude that from an engineering perspective, emissions from a modestly sized fracking industry would be able to be completely mitigated or offset within Australia. Mm. So this report assumes that between 50 and 75% of the gas produced in the Beedaloo would be exported from Darwin with those overseas emissions not included in the report's calculations. And as far as offsetting those emissions, it will require a mix of things uh, from carbon abatement projects and could use up to 10% of all the land-based credits currently available in Australia. Mm -hmm. So we'd need a lot of carbon credits to offset. Uh, The report also said it would require the use of carbon capture and storage technology. And there's a few question marks around that, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, a bit of an unproven technology at this stage. Um, And it's also flagged that uh, in a a larger scenario where a lot of gas is produced in the Beedaloo, that international carbon credits might be needed, which is uh, currently not allowed under rules in Australia. Yes. Uh, this report has been welcomed by everyone. Uh, Professor Andrew McIntosh, he was the chair of the Emissions Reductions Assurance Committee. He's um, since stepped down from that role and become a bit of a vocal critic of parts of Australia's carbon credit scheme. He's called this CRSRO report uh, as fundamentally unrealistic. It's not possible in even, say, environmental plantings, of which I'm a massive proponent, as well as plantations. I'm a big supporter of 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 both of those project types, but it is simply not possible to get that amount of sequestration in the timeframes that we're talking about here. That is just not there. On environmental plantings, we've just run a a pilot program for the federal government across twelve NRM regions, and I'll tell you, there's absolutely nowhere near the seed and seedling supply just for starters to do that sort of activity. That is Professor Andrew McIntosh speaking there. Uh, Now, in a statement, the CSRO's uh, Dr Damien Barrett, he defended this report, saying the CSRO stands by the quality of its research and the integrity of its peer review process. Uh, The NT Director of APIA, the Gas Industries Lobby Group, uh, David Slammer, he says the Beedaloo gas would provide cleaner power as coal stations are shut down. And he said the report highlights a range of technological solutions that can help the development align with Australia's climate mitigation goals. Okay, people can read more about this online if they search for ABC News. Thank you very much for the update. Dan, it's a quarter to one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. If you're in the top end, did you see him? Did you see him? The Prime Minister of Timor-Leste. He's been in the Northern Territory and he's been spending a lot of time with farmers and signing a strategic partnership. We'll learn more about this after a quick tune. Hi, uh, I'm Natalino. I'm from Istimo. I'm coming here for third time in Australia. Uh, watermelon farm in Alicurun. 
and listen to the country hours. <laughs> yeah, the Prime Minister for Timor-Leste, Tao Matan Ruak, he was in the Northern Territory last week and spent a lot of time visiting Northern Territory farms. Paul Burks, the Chief Executive of the NT Farmers Association, uh, this was an important visit by the Timor-Leste leader. What can you tell us, Paul? So Timor-Leste has been on our radar for a long period of time. Uh, Simon Smith, our president, and Ian Forrest went to Timor um, late last year to start some discussions around attracting a workforce from Timor-Leste, which is obviously one of our key markets. It's actually closer for us to get to Timor than it is to get to Alice Springs, so that says a little bit about the locality. Um, flights are generally pretty pretty reasonable, so we believe that um, there's a mutually beneficial solution for us and our workforce problems in horticulture and also for Timor-Leste people to um, bring in foreign um, money into, back into their country. So we think it's a win-win situation for us. Do we see many workers from Timor-Leste come to the Northern Territory last year? So around 250 came last year. Okay. Um, we'd like to grow that. We'd like to be the destination of choice for Timor-Leste workers. We'd also like to explore um, how we create some flexibility in that program. So potentially multiple entry visas so people can come and go, um, which will allow them to go back and see their family and and you know, spend their hard-earned earned money back in the country and come back when the season needs it. So, Do you have a target in mind on how many workers? Um, well, I think give, given the locality and given the, the price of airfares at $600, we think that that could double tomorrow. Um, and and we, we know they're, they're, they're sought after in the melon industry as well, so it's not just mangoes. So we think the flexibility, having greater pastoral care here, so greater connection um, with people back in country will give us some some really good benefits. When the Prime Minister was in town, uh, there was a signing of a, I think it's called a strategic partnership. Are you able to provide any detail on that? I don't have any detail on the strategic partnership, but we have been working with government. Government participated in the meeting we went to Timor-Leste. They, they're very clear on what we as an industry would like to see. Um, Timor is very strong in the gas sector. Um, but it also relies heavily on agriculture. So there's some, some shared vision and, and sh shared objectives that I think are important. Biosecurity is one that comes to mind. They are a very close neighbour. So what can we be doing in that space to support them? So I think there is some very clear direction from industry of where we want to take this. When the Prime Minister of Timor-Leste rocks up, what do you do? Do some touring? What so do what, you do? So what we did was um, we had a lot of Timor-Leste workers here in country at the moment. Yep. So we did uh, afternoon tea so he could actually have a chat with them and, and understand um, from their point of view how the program's going. And um, he was really excited with that. And you can imagine the tea room out at Barra Mundi, oh, Humpty Doo Barra, um, where a lot of them came from the next day. They would have been pumped. That's a good me spot. Yep. And meeting the uh, Prime Minister, it would give the workers a bit of a buzz and just shows how important this program is to both countries. Okay, so if all goes to plan, when would you expect the first plane loads of workers in 2023 to be arriving? So we're, we're working through that at the moment. Okay. Um, we would be certainly hopeful that 
we'll have um, workers here for the melon season um, as well as into the mango season. So um, through this year, we'll start to see it really ramp up. We'll actually have a presence in Timor-Leste, so we're looking at putting a staff member in Timor-Leste to, right. to work with um, um, applicants um, and also work with employers so we get the best possible people um, here in the Territory and, and they're ready to go. And just before I let you go, Paul Burke, news today that the Environment Centre NT and the Northern Land Council are taking the Territory Government to court over land clearing approval for cotton. Have you had a chance to look at this and do you have any thoughts? So we've got a board meeting coming up on 23rd of February. Um, This is a really big part of that board meeting, so I don't have any um, opinion at the moment on, on what that might look like, but it's certainly something that's getting a lot of media attention at the moment and it's something that industry will need to address. Do you think anything illegal is happening here? I, I don't have an opinion. Those those um, cases are being investigated, as I'm led to believe. Um, in some cases, there, there has been findings already made and um, I, I, I'm not privy to those and um, we'll work through the process as we always do. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Matt. Hi, I'm Jake Stringer. I'm the manager of Kidman Spring Station, and you're listening to The Country Hour. And just on that Avern court case, which has been launched, I've got a text here from Alan who says, Matt, the NT government has gifted the Environment Centre millions, and once again this mob attempts to stop anything and everything that the government tries to do to develop industries on the land or whatever. I'm no fan of the government, says Alan, but find it ironic. The funder is being taken to court here. Not in my backyard, no matter how small or large, seems to be the mantra to stop any development. The NT will be forever dependent on the feds. Well, until they start to turn the economic tap off, says Alan on the text. Speaking of funding, some of the country's most influential farm lobby groups have teamed up to put pressure on the federal government to inject $5.5 billion into improving the nation's road network over the next four years. $5.5 billion. Flooding across large parts of rural Australia in the last 12 months have left country roads and some of the nation's main highways in need of repair, desperate need. Zach Whale is the General Manager of Policy at Grain Growers and explained to Amelia Bernasconi why they've formed this alliance to address the issue. So road funding has been on the agenda for a while and lots of people have been talking a lot about the state of the roads right across Australia, but it's got to such a critical point that the National Farmers Federation, the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association, the Australian uh, Local Government Association and Grain Growers have come together to really hammer home uh, what's needed in terms of uh, funding right now uh, in the lead up to the May budget so that we can actually get some of these issues addressed uh, because the the time's now. It's a huge problem. Um, It's a big price tag, but it's a big payoff uh, for all regional road users if we can get this right. We have seen an extraordinary number of flood events this year and other natural disasters. Can you take us through it and, and the impacts that you've been hearing back from your members? Yeah, sure. So since January 22, there's been 23 flood events with, you know, hundreds of declarations across most local government areas. And the especially wet couple of years on the East Coast have just meant that the road service has just broken up and there has not been um, the ability to actually fix that 
uh, quickly enough uh, so that road users can can actually have a, a safe uh, and productive road surface to get critical inputs into regional communities uh, to get exports uh, or, or produce from farm to destination. And, and as I said, also um, to actually ensure that our roads are safe. It's a monumentous task and it's something that anyone who has driven in, in rural Australia over the last few years would understand. So, you know, it's a productivity issue, it's a safety issue, and ultimately it comes down to getting the right amount of funding back into local governments so that they can get those roads repaired. And in addition, we're seeing more and more need for uh, not just um, standard repair, so you get a pothole, you fix a pothole, but how do we actually better repair these roads and rebuild roads to a point where they can actually withstand uh, greater climate issues into the future. So we're going to get you know, more and more adverse weather conditions and it's not enough to just repair the roads to the same spec. We have to actually think about what it's going to take um, to get the roads repaired so that they can handle um, these conditions into the future and that is not a cheap task. No. So take us through what you're calling on ahead of the May budget. Yeah, so in the, in the May budget, we're asking for a one-off injection of a billion dollars over four years directed specifically um, at, at councils impacted by floods and other natural disasters to ensure that they can rebuild to a higher standard. Uh, we're also calling for $800 million over four years for the Roads to Recovery Program, uh, $300 million a year over four years to address first and last mile freight productivity issues. That's a critical one. We hear so much about first and last mile. Often the middle part of the network um, like imagine your, your big trunk roads and your, your national highways, often they can handle um, high productivity. But the first mile, so from the mailbox um, to your first point of receival or your local market, um, or the last bit, once you actually get off that big arterial road um, to where the, where the goods are going, that's the critical bit that actually needs um, some work. And finally, targeted funding through the Roads of Strategic Importance Program to improve long-term climate resilience of freight networks in general, in addition to um, that targeted funding I mentioned earlier about um, you know, targeted funding for local governments. So it's, it's $5.5 billion, um, and look, in terms of general budgetary funding, it doesn't seem like much, but gee, that would go some way um, to really help um, fix these, these rural-focused issues um, to make sure that the safety is improved on our rural roads and also we get that productivity kick. That is Zach Whale from Grain Growers speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi. These farm lobby groups seeking $5.5 billion to improve the nation's road network over the next four years. As we go to air this afternoon, there is a severe weather warning in parts for Arnhem Land and the Carpentaria districts. There's a marine wind warning. There's a flood watch. And, of course, a tropical low drifting around the Gulf of Carpentaria. We'll learn more in five minutes when we chat to the Weather Bureau. But now it's news time on the ABC. G'day folks, Troy Casadale here. Um, every time I get to the Territory, it's always a, an honour and a privilege. I get up here and I flip lures at Barramundi and Saratoga and whatever else will chase my line. Um, it's a great place to be. You're very lucky to live up here and you're tuned into the country. Thank you very much, Troy Casadale. I'll try and sneak a, a tune by Troy into the second half of the Country Hour if we have time. In a moment, we'll be taking a trip to Matarenka, where community members are working hard to make the area neem-free by 2023. And I don't know that people realise how invasive it is. And once you do get closer to the river, you start seeing monocultures. So it's up to us to make a difference because it's not going to happen by itself. Producer Dan Fitzgerald has promised me he has an amazing story about grass to share with you, to share with us. Looking forward to that. And we're hearing from you as well on 0487 
99-1057. A moment ago, I shared with you a text from Alan talking about the court case that is underway regarding the land clearing permit for Averne. And Alan was making comments about how the Territory Government had gifted the Environment Centre millions, according to Alan. I got a text here from Diane Nycliffe. Dyer says the Environment Centre receives very little funding from the government. In fact, it is for one person on policy only, says Dyer. The community organisation is funded mainly by supporters and its members, says Dyer on 0487991057. Let's go to the Weather Bureau because there's a lot going on. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon and Beck, let's start in the Gulf of Carpentaria and this tropical low, what can you tell us? Yeah, good afternoon, Matt. Um, the tropical low at the moment is in the, the western Gulf of Carpentaria, around halfway between Nulamboy and Groot Island. Um, so it's still relatively weak, but um, is starting to develop a little bit more. Um, we do have that cyclone watch current at the moment, that's for uh, Cape Shield uh, around the southern Gulf of Carpentaria to the Queensland border and includes Groot Island. Um, so, yeah, through those areas, uh, we can expect um, some heavy rainfall. Uh, also, uh, at, the, at the moment, the, the most likely scenario is that this will stay as a low, um, not... Um, not developing to a cyclone streak, but there is still a risk that that still might happen. I've which got is here, why we have, yeah, I've got here the yeah. language is it may develop into a Cat One later on Tuesday. Yeah, that's if at right. All, I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, but it is worth mentioning that um, regardless of whether it becomes a proper cyclone, we could still get gales on its southern side. Mm-hmm. Now, for cattle stations in the Northern Territory, over the years, sometimes it's a a tropical low like this one that can deliver some some game-changing rain for their operations. What is the latest forecast there in, in terms of, of rainfall getting into cattle country? Yeah, that that is a good point to make. Um, so longer term, the low is expected to move southwards. So uh, the current forecast is, is close to the NT Queensland border where it's uh, likely to make landfall later in the week um, and then move southwards. Still a bit uncertain which side of the border it will go and therefore where the heaviest rainfall is, but we are expecting um, rain to uh, to increase over the Barclay later in the week as that system moves a bit further south. In terms of millimetres, are you willing to, to share some numbers? <laughs> it is really difficult at the moment because... Um, yeah, in the Gulf of Carpentaria, the movement of uh, these tropical systems can be quite erratic. So um, I, I imagine if I say something now, it'll probably change <laughs> tomorrow. I've got a text here from Anna who says, could you please ask the Bureau if this low is going to head our way? Uh, Anna says, the Northern Simpson Plenty Highway. Um, is a, well, I wouldn't expect that the low would go all the way down, um, but it, we could see uh, showers and storms extending down that way towards the weekend, I'd say. Yep. More will be known. More will be known. Uh, there's, 
there's a lot of warnings associated with this. Um, any in particular that you feel we should be aware of? Um, so obviously the, the cyclone watch, we also do have a flood watch current. Um, so we did cancel that from the western parts of the top end as we are expecting some some dry air to come through that will um, make those showers and storms easing off a bit over the next few days. But that's still current for the eastern gulf areas. There's also a marine wind warning out as you would expect. Um, and for coastal communities, we do have a severe weather warning for damaging surf as well along the coast. Okay. It uh, looks like a, a, a sort of a steady week around Alice Springs. Is that fair to say? Yes, not much change. Um, it has been pretty much sunny and hot across the southern half of the Territory throughout the weekend, and we are expecting that to continue for the, the next few days as well. So those temperatures getting up into the high 30s and, and the low 40s, um, particularly through the Lassiter District and parts of the Tanami as well. And in terms of rainfall over the weekend period, can you share with us some of the best figures for the 72-hour time time? Yeah, sure. Um, so we've had some reasonable rainfall across the northern half of the Territory. Um, not not anything, I don't think, over the Barclay or the, the Simpson or the Lassiter district. Um, in terms of highest numbers... Um, I think Manangrita uh, was pretty high. They had um, they had 120 millimetres falling just on Saturday, um, but as for the three days, 149 millimetres. Um, there's been some moderate rainfall around the Victoria River area, um, getting up to uh, let's see, we've got Keep River 83 millimetres, um, so reasonable there. Border Creek with 61. Delamere Range 81 um, and across the top end um, as well uh, on the Tiwis 133 at Pearl and Gympie um, Dorisvale Crossing 104, Adelaide River 109 mm, so, These are decent, yeah, some, these are decent Yeah, some, some good three day totals through there I tell you what, I woke up uh, yesterday and just quickly looked at rainfall figures, I was interested and uh, 400 millimetres at Nightcliff Pool I assume uh, the rain gauge fell into the pool, did it? <laughs> yes, um, we <laughs> think that's not correct. I, I think either they've um, uh, misplaced a decimal point or... <laughs> it's or it's fallen it in the a... pool. It's just someone's knocked it in the actual <laughs> pool. That's all I could assume. <laughs> yes, so um, no, we didn't get one. <laughs> no worries. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks for your time. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. It is 13 past one on the country hour. And yes, a tropical cyclone advice and a watch in place for Cape Shield to the NT Queensland border, including Groot Island. And for all of our friends on Groot this afternoon, here is some important information for you in language. ABC Radio, cyclone preparation information in Andiliakwa. Thank 
khatrike jung manja kana skola ngo koloka cha kankan nglauri gaiwa kenker ka cha akan nglongwa local radio station akaneta eyakwa akwa yakak makaneta Right across the church on the ABC, this is the Country Hour. Let's head to Matarenka, where community members are banding together to try and eradicate an invasive weed in their region. The Roper River Landcare Group wants to see Matarenka neem-free in 2023 and have been busy getting rid of neem tree infestations around the town and, of course, along the all-important river systems. Max Rowley went for a drive with the team to find out more. Old names, that is old names, underneath one large native. Will they choke out those natives then eventually? Absolutely, absolutely. It is all chalker block. And so in 12 months' time, if you were to come down and do this same drive, you would struggle to find any native trees. Hi, I'm Doris Bayless, Mataranka Station and Secretary of the Roper Riverland Care Group. And take me through what you're doing this morning. Uh, in conjunction with Roper Golf Council, we are tackling the names around the cemetery block, uh, just as it's one of the source blocks that we've identified in Mataranka and part of our campaign is to make Mataranka neem-free for 2023. What kind of impact uh, are neems having on the community here in in Mataranka? I think it's the invasiveness and I don't know that people realise how invasive it is and once you do get closer to the river you start seeing monocultures which means all you see are neems. There is nothing else except for neems so if it's doing that there how far has that potential got to spread? So we have Mataranka Station that does not have a, a climate that's suitable for names, but they are appearing, and that is because of um, other areas that are that it's being allowed to spread. So we do have to start somewhere. We do have to take... Uh, control at some stage because if we don't then we will end up with a much broader landscape of neem trees instead of um, a landscape that the Northern Territory is proud to say is pristine. And Mataranka is famous for the hot springs and in that river corridor. Are you seeing that the impact of neem trees on that area? Absolutely. They're obviously a part of the river system, so you're definitely seeing neem trees throughout that area, um, those areas, and, and the access roads to those areas. So it's up to us to make a difference because it's not going to happen by itself. How do they spread? Birds are very good at spreading names, and then once you have an established tree, you will find that they are able to put out thousands of seedlings. Given how widespread they are, what chance do you think you have of really stamping them out in the community? In the community, we shouldn't have any problems whatsoever. Uh, it's it's your river corridors that it's going to be much harder to get rid of. Um, but if those make an effort to get rid of names on their properties, it it is manageable, it is possible to do, and we're doing that step by step. And I think we're proving that in Mataranka, just because the campaign has been going on for two years, 
now and we'll continue to do it until we see properties keep taking on that challenge and getting rid of them in their properties. Should landholders be forced to, to address this problem and, and to spray these neem trees? I don't think that system really works very well. There's different priorities that people have. Uh, time, I know for ourselves personally, time is always short supply. Labour is very short supply. Uh, money is short supply. So to ask people to put that on them I think is really hard, especially when you're looking at time constraints. But I, I do think that uh, people generally like to try and do the right thing. So if you're giving them an opportunity and helping them do that, then that's you're more likely to have people come on board. And on the flip side, I guess, uh, given how widespread these weeds are, um, should they just be accepted as part of the, the environment here now? Uh, is it possible to stamp them out? I'm sure that would be the easy solution. However, it's not something that I think most pastoralists will accept as acceptable. So no, I don't think that's the answer and I don't think uh, you'll find land care people that will they'll take that as uh, a way out. My name's Margot Sullivan. I'm from a small cattle property just out of Matarenka. What impacts are you seeing from the names on your property? Uh, it's largely just an environmental sort of an impact. It doesn't impact us so much for production, but you can really see the neem trees starting to take over, especially around the river corridors. Um, they grow really thick, choking out a lot of the native vegetation. And um, as much as they might be a nice shady tree, we don't really like having them around because they're not supposed to be there. And so you've noticed them spread really quickly then? Yeah, they have spread really quickly and um, and they're just slowly working their way further and further up the river. Uh, we're starting to find them in areas that we hadn't seen them before and we have been making an effort to try and slow them up and get rid of them and that's, that's quite hard when there's more neems around the area that aren't on our property. What is it like actually getting on top of the infestations that you have? Uh, there's a lot of walking around. Um, walking through the scrub. A lot of the places that the neems are growing, it's too thick to drive in there even with a quad bike. Um, so there's a lot of k's and a lot of labour and chemical involved, so it's quite an expensive exercise. So we, um, we're really trying to focus on the big seeding trees and then we can come back through and try to get rid of some of those smaller immature trees. And, um, yeah, it's just a continuous project and sometimes it feels a bit pointless if, you know, you feel like you're not making any progress at all, but we don't really, we don't want to give in on it and we'd really like to see them eradicated or at least really controlled to a point that there's, there's not many around. Are you having any wins there? Are you seeing much progress? In areas where we launch quite a campaign into them, you see progress for a while and then they start to come back. There's a lot of seeding trees on areas that we don't, own so we're technically we're not allowed to go there and eradicate those big seeding trees on those areas so we might get rid of the neems in an area on our property but the seeds just keep coming over the fence from somewhere else. How important then is it to have I guess uh, a community-led approach and partnerships with other landholders around this? A community-led approach is it's really important. It's sort of something that you need everyone on board with because you only need one person 
not to engage with getting rid of Nimes and their block acts as a seeding block for everyone else's and you just end up with a continuous battle and you're never able to get rid of the source. So, um, yeah, it's just it's important we're trying to encourage as many people as possible to get out on top of their Nimes. We all understand what a big expense it is, we're all paying it, especially when trees get to the point that they probably need lopping because poisoning them makes them hazardous once they're dead. So um, we understand that's a big cost, but we've just got to start somewhere and, and it's something that, you know, a bit of funding would go a long way and we're sort of always looking for ways to to see where we might be able to source some funding and, and encouraging people to get on board. And what's the risk if Nimes do get even more out of control in the region? What, what could we lose? I think future generations will just lose... Um, they'll never get to see the rivers and the springs and all the native vegetation as it as it should be in all its glory. It'll just be an absolute sea of neem trees and and there's other weeds as well that are problems. Um, it's not always just neems, but the neems will will take over and it'll just be wall to wall. There'll be um, all that pristine Australian landscapes that you see that are so stereotypical of this area. They'll just they won't exist anymore and that'll be that'll be pretty sad really. Margot Sullivan from Cave Creek Station near Matarenka and she's also part of the Europa River Landcare Group which is aiming to be neem free in 2023 and we wish them all the best. Now tonight set the alarm clock eight o'clock back roads on ABC TV and the program tonight is in Tennant Creek. Heather Ewart will not be presenting. No, no, no. The guest presenter this evening will be the legendary Paralympian Kurt Fernley in Tennant Creek, catching up with all kinds of locals, telling wonderful stories, one of which is meeting local fossicker Jimmy Hooker. Gold was first found here in 1926, and by the 1930s, the last gold rush in Australia took place in Tennant Creek. All up. Tennant Creek was Australia's third largest gold producer in its gold rush days. The last open cut gold mine closed in 1987, but there's still gold in them there hills. Jimmy, from a Queensland Aboriginal mob, has been fossicking here for more than 40 years. Experience, of course. It didn't work from day one, I can tell you. Tender Creek is a hard uh, gold field to work. I'll, I'll go through on my hands and knees and, and have a look where I've found gold first. Then I'll go back to that gravel and I'll read that. Beautiful sound. <laughs> he can read it all right. I can hardly believe my own eyes when he digs up a two-ounce gold nugget. Now, what I do now, to brighten up a bit, I go here. You bloody legend, Jimmy. <laughs> What's the feeling that you get when you find gold? 
I just got mad. I got, ooh, 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 Do you enjoy the actual adventure of looking for gold, or is it having that gold in your hand? If it was money, I'd have put all the gold away. I could have been a billionaire in here, probably. So why do you do it? I just love it. Kiss me, shit. <laughs> Tennant Creek Fossica, Jimmy Hooker and Kurt Fernley on ABC's Backroads program tonight at 8 o'clock. And if you miss it, you'll be able to find it via ABC iView. Sounds like it's going to be a wonderful episode this evening. I can't wait. Now, producer Dan Fitzgerald has come running into the studio, says he's got big Super Bowl news and big grass news. Let's start with the Super Bowl, Dan. Well, yeah, the Super Bowl has just finished over in the US. The Kansas City Chiefs beat Philadelphia Eagles 38-35. to Okay. By reports, it was a good game. Uh, but you know, that was the, the minor show compared to... Uh, I want to introduce you to George Toma. He is 94 years old, and for the last 57 years, he has been in charge of making sure that the players and performers have got good grass to grow on, to, to play on. Uh, hang on a minute. So 57 years, this guy's in charge of the turf. Yep. He, uh, in the US, they call turf sod. He's known as the sod master. And everywhere the US Super Bowl has been held, because it moves around in different yeah, cities. he goes. He goes there and makes sure the grass is pristine and ready uh, for not only for the footy players but for the performers as well because they give it quite a workout. Um, Now, preparing that doesn't come cheap. It cost a million dollars to prepare the grass for this year's Super Bowl Um, (laughs) and it was actually held at an indoor stadium in Phoenix, Arizona. So to make sure that the grass is ready to go, they devised this mechanism where the whole pitch is wheeled out of the indoor stadium in the morning so it can get some sunlight and then wheeled back in at night. We saw a video of that, just unbelievable. Pretty amazing yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, here's the sod father himself, uh, George Toma, explaining it all to Fox Weather. We have this stadium, and it's on a big tray, and it's on railroad rail, uh, rails, and uh, we're lucky right now. We bring it out uh, in the daytime, and then we put it back at, in at night because there's, there's frost out here. And it takes an hour to put in and an hour to get out. And uh, right now, it's getting good sunshine. But five days before the game, the whole system will go in and stay inside uh, because they have to set up uh, lights and everything. And uh, we're trying to get it tough because next, uh, we have 32 hours of pregame and halftime rehearsals with a lot of equipment on there and a lot of people on there. So we have to make it tough. That is a sod father, father. George Toma. After 57 years, he is retiring from preparing the NFL Super Bowl grass surface. You mentioned how important the entertainment is. Chris Stapleton got put in charge of singing the national anthem. Uh, We'll leave our country audience with that this afternoon. Keep it rural. Here's Chris. Free. 